the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. It's a delight on these Fridays when we get to check in with one of my favorite academics and public intellectuals, and that's Pete Peterson. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, and you can follow him on Twitter at Pete4CA. It's the number four, at Pete, the number four, CA. Pete, it feels like it's been a long time. How are you, sir? Real good, Seth. Great to be back with Great to have you. Thank you. Um, and thank you for uh, that uh, one-week reprieve when we didn't have you, but we missed you. You gave a uh, speech. Do I read this right this morning? Council yeah. of State Governments? Tell us about that. Yeah, that's um, the Council of State Governments is essentially a, an association of uh, state legislators as well as uh, statewide elected officials um, that meet, conference, learn, training education programs. I was asked to give a talk today on uh, some of the work we do through our Davenport Institute uh, to make government more responsive and participatory, uh, to find ways to rebuild trust in our governing institutions by, guess what, Uh, trying to reduce the role of experts in policymaking. So, uh, So, yeah, we had a this was a this was a committee within that group. So it was about thirty um, statewide elected officials and and legislators from around the country. Nice. What's the main message you conveyed? Well, the part of the problem. I mean, essentially, I was asked to speak on the decreasing levels of trust that are being recorded in surveys uh, of uh, citizens towards their governing institutions. It used to be that. We saw these uh, low levels of trust by Americans only in their federal government, um, and greater levels of trust were reserved for state and local governments. Um, But over the last couple of years, we've seen all the trend lines heading in a negative direction. And certainly there are a variety of reasons for that. But my argument is that um, certainly one of the things that I see in the work that I get a chance to do is – the public often um, will not stand for experts, um, especially experts coming from the government, telling them uh, that this is the way forward, whether it's a, a local development project or uh, a, na- a piece of national uh, policy on health care. So um, finding ways to better engage the public, to better sense where they're coming from, but also match the policy making that you're doing to understand that Phoenix is different than Los Angeles, for example, um, and matching policies to uh, the place in which you serve um, is something that, you know, it's it's kind of classically conservative, um, but it's certainly a perspective that uh, that we need to um, we need to think about again. Trust in experts is a really interesting 
area of inquiry. If I can spend a second with you, we're talking to Pete yep. Peterson from Pepperdine. Pete, there, it, it, one of the odd things uh, about life here in the uh, 21st and late 20th century it began was it seemed like there was an increasing amount. Uh, the more we learned about the government, um, the more distrust there was. And it seems that the last... Uh, so, so we looked under the hood and we didn't like what we found, but the, is, is I guess the short way to put it. But the last year, year and a half brought a whole new level to cynicism, didn't it? In a way, um, some liberal writers uh, have been pointing this out. Actually, they've come around to where we were a year ago, but they've come around to the point that maybe science itself has taken a huge hit over the past yeah. year, and maybe well, science and I, caused the problem that you know so many of our progressives thought was designed to solve. Yeah, well, there's been some really good writing on this. You're right to point out some some of the folks, uh, especially opinion writers on the left. Um, I'm just about finished with a book by Martin Gurry called Revolt of the Public. Ah. Um, Gurry is a former CIA analyst, and his hypothesis is um, really with the Internet, the ability to do your own research at a scale and scope that is vastly more powerful for the average person today than it was five years ago, much less 15 or 20 years ago, is that people are actually finding out that the experts that are making certain pronouncements um, are either A, politically motivated, or B, speaking from a type of expertise that's so narrow that it's not actually relevant to the policies being made. Of course, we've seen this so often in the response to COVID and the pandemic, but we've seen it in a variety of different places, climate science and Mm -hmm. um, other areas as well, where it's just been made manifestly um, apparent to uh, Americans in particular um, that the experts are either politically motivated or, again, they're speaking from one's narrow experience that may not have relevance to a broad-based public policy. Don't you find it interesting, Pete? Um, th- that's well put, by the way. But, 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 but it makes me ask, don't you find it interesting that this problem comes to us, these narrow views, these, um, these, these, uh, these groupthink-type views or these a priori settled views which preemptorily cut off other inquiries debates and questioning isn't it kind of interesting that canceling and censorship is at its apex when this is going on and when we're learning again and again and again what happens when you don't take dissenting ideas seriously or at least give them a chance to air themselves out because it's turning out more often than not at least over the past year and a half we're learning with regard to the virus that the yeah. dissenting views were more right than the conventional. No, that's absolutely right. And so not only are you starting with experts that are being proven wrong, mm-hmm. um, the megaphone, if you will, that they speak through, i.e. the media and social media, as you pointed out, are showing themselves to be not just arbiters of the truth or, or searchers and promoters of the truth, but they're, they themselves are politically or otherwise motivated. Um, And as you say, as it relates to COVID and just this walk back that we've seen on people beginning again to actually take seriously Mm -hmm. uh, looking into the origins of COVID, Mm -hmm. uh, that was a 
that was a line of questioning and discussion that was shut down not only by the experts but by uh, social media yep. and the media companies as well. Yep. And that also includes discussion about costs of shutdowns, cost That's of right. ancillary medical issues, masks, right. um, which the evidence, I mean, it, it, it's it's not exactly pouring in, but the evidence keeps coming that, that, as I say, it turns out the dissenting views might have been the more correct views, or at least look more correct than the conventional views. So even these experts, uh, supposedly touted experts in science who were supposed to listen to and brook no dissent with, uh, tolerate right. no dissent from, uh, how, it, 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 it creates its own kind of progressive arrogance, doesn't it? We To the point where then we see someone like Anthony Fauci, who I think is the poster boy for this, or patient zero maybe, in a sense of groupthink in the 21st century, Pete, when he said, if you disagree with me, you disagree with science. Disagree with science. No, you're absolutely what right. What is this, that the sun king? Is this I, I am the state all over again? I know, I know. That's exactly what I thought of when I, right? when I first saw that clip. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're absolutely right. And I, I think over time, one of the things that's going to happen in the months and years ahead is we are finally going to count those costs. Mm-hmm that when President Trump said way back when we don't want the cure to be worse than the disease and he just got shouted down and laughed off that anybody would think that there's any other metric out there for evaluating public health other than stopping the spread, that maybe that there were some costs to be borne, actual public health costs Mm -hmm. to be borne Mm -hmm. by taking the courses that we did. And I'm afraid that we're only going to, we're only just beginning to see what what those are about. Yeah, I think I think that's right too, Pete. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that, and I want to talk to you a little bit about what we learned or saw this week, because there's an, there's all kinds of experts that we <clears throat> right we uh, defer to, and and um, and to, and if there were a series of experts we heard from this week, uh, it puts us in an uncomfortable place in some respects. But they were military leadership. You had I don't mm. know if you were following some of these hearings. Yes. With the uh, head of uh, naval operations and uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and we're now talking uh, like it's 1993 again about white rage. Can we can we pick up on some of what those experts are saying about this very tender issue when we come back? Absolutely. Thanks, Pete. I appreciate it. We're talking to Pete Peterson. He is, of course, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. The um, Probably, uh, my, I have to say, if 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 you're going if you're going to look for a graduate, not probably, if you're going to look for a, a degree in graduate coursework and trying to improve our society, there is only really one school, and that is Pepperdine. And their website, which is why we partner with them, and their website, of course, is publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I mean, you just get the best of scholarship there. I am Seth Liebson, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Our guest, Pete Peterson, dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, uh, and um, uh, and uh, and the and the uh, uh, what is it with the Davenport Institute, Pete? That you do tell me senior about the fellow. you had mentioned yep. it, yeah, senior fellow, yep. and you had mentioned it in your last comments. But I wasn't. It's an institute within the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. 
That's right. Like it Hoover focuses is on working with local governments and uh, city municipal agencies. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, Pete, I wanted to get your perspective on the past week, um, these hearings with military leadership, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, director of Naval Operations, and, uh, of course, the Secretary of Defense. Uh, a lot of us in academia like you are and like I have been, we, we've known about this critical race theory stuff for a long time. I first started noticing it circa 1990, maybe, somewhere around there, 91, somewhere in there. And, and it was one of these things that others have said it this way as well, that it was, it was just a small part of academia. Um, it was growing certainly within academia as the 90s wore on. But in a weird way, we always kind of thought it would just be confined to the ivory towers. But like the uh, like uh, potentially the uh, coronavirus, it leaked out of the lab, didn't it? It kind of it kind of leaked out of those ivory towers. We just didn't expect it would reach places like the military. But if you listen to General Milley or uh, the Admiral this past week, boy, they sound just like Derek Bell. Yeah, you know. That testimony given by General Milley, he equates the teaching of uh, coursework that could broadly be called uh, critical theory um, as being somewhat similar to making sure that you read things like Marx and Lenin mm-hmm. and Mao. Um, of course, the huge difference is, <laughs> I would guess those subjects, at least let us hope, are read with a critical eye. We teach Marx here. Of course. Um, but I can guarantee you that we that students are are walking through a, a series of conversations and debates with a critical eye on that particular subject matter. One wonders when, say for example, in the Navy's reading list they're reading uh, sexual minorities and politics is one of the books that is being written over there or read over there. Um, whether those are being um, taught in a way that allows for debate, discussion, and, and criticism. And I would just doubt that there is as much allowance for debate and criticism in those uh, in the teaching of that subject matter as one would see in in Marx and Mao. I remember about two thousand and three. A well-meaning entrepreneur came to visit me and the former Secretary of Education, Bill Bennett, to talk about a plan he had to bring America curriculum to the madrasas of the Middle East and uh, Africa and Asia. And I remember the first thing Dr. Bennett said was, that's the last thing they need. It's the last thing they need. The American curriculum right now is one that doesn't try to understand, I think, as you put it, Marx and Mao Zedong and Lenin, the way Pepperdine teaches it. It's more about adopting it. And -hmm. you're damn right, Mm -hmm. Pete. You're damn right. I'm sorry, but it gets me mad because Mm -hmm. you know they're playing a shell game. You know damn well they're not having them read Witness. You know they're not reading The God That Failed. You know they're not reading Thomas Sowell. You know they're not reading Larry Elder. You know this. We know this. This is a shell game that they are playing because, of course, it's for purposes of endorsement and adoption. And it's not about merely understanding. And I think the tale was told. 
frankly, when the uh, when the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs said um, that I'm reading Mao Zedong, Karl Marx and Lenin because I think it's important that we train and we understand and we want to understand what it is that we're defending, that we are accusing the United States military and our non-commissioned officers of being woke. No, I just want them to have a situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend. My God, mm. Pete, mm, Mao Zedong and Karl Marx and Lenin can teach our military why to defend the United States? Yeah, and I, I guess just to take it a step further, when he also argued that, you know, I'm reading these uh, books and resources coming out of critical theory as a way of understanding white rage. That's right. Are we even debating that white rage is a thing? That's what I wanted to ask you about. And it reminded I mean, me of nothing. I'm not expert enough to know. But yeah. Here's what I do know. Yeah. General Milley is starting from a standpoint that white rage is real. Uh-huh. And I need to understand then uh-huh. what it's about. And these books and resources and classes uh, coming out of critical theory are going to help me understand why white rage is we- real. Well, there's something missing from that, mm-hmm. which is an initial critique and discussion and debate to even ask, is this actually a real concept? Right. And General Milley didn't seem to... He had seemed to really buy this whole concept, uh, hook, line, and sinker. Well, that's one certain. That's certainly one one problem. And I and and you're right to I, I, you're good to point it out. I didn't think of it that way. I, I was looking at it from a different angle, but I think it's also possibly there as well, Pete. I wonder what you think. He wants to read Mao and Carl and Vladimir to understand America, and he wants to read. Ibram Kendi, I guess, to understand white rage. If you want to understand these people for what they really are saying, which is what he's trying to convince the Republicans of, then why wouldn't you read David Duke to understand white rage? Why wouldn't you read white supremacists to understand white rage? Which, of course, is absurd, and and they shouldn't and they don't. But his position is intellectually... uh, uh, just just a mess of a soup. It makes no sense. But again, back to the debate, no, there is no debate as to whether communism is a real thing. Correct. That's a good point. Uh, the, the question as to whether white rage is a real thing, I think, should at least be criti- critiqued and debated uh, and really understood as to what type, if it is, in fact, some sort of condition that people need to worry about. Um what is the military's role in all this? I understand what it is when we're talking about communism, um, but what is the military's role in understanding white rage, if it is even such a thing? I'm, I'm not really that clear. But again, no, it's a, it's, a real, it's a real problem because I think we have to be prepared for a lot of talk about white rage going forward. And it reminded me of nothing so much as 1993 and 94 when the Democrats pulled out white rage as their presidency and administration was becoming increasingly unpopular. I wonder if we could pick up on that, but you may recall some of that. Um, There was that, what was that movie, Falling Down? You know, why is the white man so angry? All these articles in 93, 94 about that, just as Republicans were ascendant. I wonder if that's the playbook they're dusting off. But when I look at military, um, military, um, uh, terror, terrorist, terrorism that is uh, 
engaged in by members or former members of the military. Um, the incidents I can think of are not about white rage, quite frankly. They're about Islamist rage. That, it seems to me, might have been something worth the admirable admiral talking about or the chairman talking about. But, of course, then you'd be arguing with the woke. You can't do that. We'll be right back with more from Pete Peterson. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Pete Peterson uh, staying with us. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Pete, you raised a really good question, which is um, this issue that um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff brought up this week, white rage, trying to understand it. And it just took me back to 93. That's what the Democrats were talking about back then after uh, a year of uh, of uh, of Bill Clinton kind of stumbling through his administration, and they talked about it in '94. And Hollywood lent a hand with movies that were designed to showcase it. And I don't know that we ever really had it. There's talk about it, but I don't know how much of it is there. It certainly doesn't explain the two billion dollars worth of damage and thirty deaths that wrecked the country last year. That wasn't because of white rage. Um, and I certainly haven't seen examples of it here, but I do notice that Nancy Pelosi is trying to attach that label to the January 6th riot and make it all of a piece. It's well, worrisome. General Milley did as well. Yes, yes. I mean, General Milley yes, did that's right. testimony. He, he that's went right. right from speaking about wanting to know about white rage to saying, I want to know why, he said thousands, of people attack the Capitol, which was essentially saying that the attack on the Capitol was based on this rather amorphous concept uh, called white rage. And so the racialization of that term, we all understand that rage is a real thing, but the racialization of it, um, I just don't think is helpful for broader uh, the broader public square. Yeah, because um, it's it's difficult to define if somebody who happens to be white is angry about something, then all of a sudden they are put in a different category. Um, there's no real way to address it, right? So if it's some sort of psychological condition, uh, there's no way that I understand or know of to, to address it specifically. Um, it's a label uh, that's meant, frankly, to discount opposition. It's an awfully racist label because it does the work of of um, of, of of the group libel by scapegoat, doesn't it, Pete? I mean, to say that rage comes from race, right? And that's does that, that that's explain that it, I'm in right? the same what? I'm in the same group of Jeffrey Dahmer or Mother Teresa? Which one? Right, and so if. Uh, the Tea Party, for example, is protesting, you know, uh, national health care. Is that ipso facto white rage or just somebody who happens to be white actually has a legitimate protest against a piece of public policy? Right. So you're essentially discounting uh, for the purposes of political gain and power. Let's just be frank about it. Um 
using a term like that to attach to anyone who happens to be white and is uh, protesting or arguing against a particular public policy. Now, this is not to say that what went down on January 6th, uh, that those involved should not be prosecuted as they are. Um, That is all happening. But again, I don't even know why white rage, if that is some sort of real condition, is even helpful for us to understand what happened on January 6th. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. I don't even know that it, I mean, even if we said, ah, oh, okay, white rage, and we had, you know, all the psychiatrists and Anthony Fauci say it was due to, (laughs) ah, okay, Right. What, where do we go from there? <laughs> that's a that's a very good point. No, I, I, I don't know what your views on it are. I, I, I've looked as much as I possibly can, and I haven't found a theme to that pudding of January 6th. I saw a ragtag bunch of misled and mis, 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 uh, misdirected people storming a Capitol uh, building um, with, uh, with intentions that were, to me, totally discombobulated, unclear – and self-contradictory. That's what I saw. And they should be arrested, and they should be processed, and that should be the end of it. I don't know what more there is to say about it, but it certainly wasn't what took place last summer. Yeah, and unless and until there is some sort of understanding of coordinated effort or some broader themes, I think the word discombobulated is is very appropriate to understanding or trying to grasp what happened on January 6th. Yeah, sometimes an anarchist mob is just that, right? Sometimes an anarchist mob is just an... You had one of my favorite people on the um, campus the other day, and that is someone who speaks probably smarter about this, more smartly about this than anyone I can think of, and that was Glenn Lowry. I wonder if on the other side of this break you might tell us a little bit about what he said. Absolutely. I would love that. I would love that. He's a hero of mine. Pete Peterson, you're a hero of mine too, and I appreciate you staying with us. We'll be right back with a little more from Pete Peterson telling us about Glenn Lowry. Portions of the show are brought to you by our friends at Trades Unlimited for all your roofing needs. Right now, they want to tell you about their expertise in foam roofs, which help insulate your home from not only just the Arizona heat, but also noise, exterior noise, and most importantly, water leaks. I know the folks at Trades Unlimited. I've used them for my own roof, and I've been down and visited their offices and warehouse. They are just great people with a great work ethic which is why they have an A-plus rating at the BBB, for all your roofing needs. Check out Trades Unlimited at tradesunlimited.com. Quality and service is what you will come to know with Trades Unlimited, and it's never too late to give them a call. 480-483-1775 or visit them online at tradesunlimited.com. Pete Peterson is our guest, Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, just brought out Glenn Lowry, from Brown University to speak at Pepperdine. Uh, Pete, tell the people about Glenn and what is it he said that you thought was most uh, most important and trenchant to take away? Well, the title of his talk was uh, Saving the American Project, the Development Narrative versus the Bias Narrative. And this talk that he gave, which was easily 45 minutes, uh, just went into his area of expertise, which is economics. Um, Dr. Lowry is a professor of economics at Brown University, and um, 
was the essentially the the person who coined the term social capital mm-hmm. as a way of understanding uh, that social networks uh, can be economically advantageous, that those growing up in tight networks of either family or civic or social relationships uh, have advantages that those who uh, grow up in more kind of solitary existences, smaller families, disconnected families, or social environments uh, do not have. And took that awareness to apply it to uh, the disparities that uh, we see on a variety of uh, disparities in, in race uh, that we see across uh, a variety of, of public policies and essentially ask some deeper questions about the importance of these primary institutions, whether they be the family or uh, the neighborhood community uh, or other important civic institutions like churches, houses of worship, and so forth, um, because they can be uh, very determinative of economic success. And it's a lens that, um, obviously, Dr. Lowry is not only expert in, um, but he is also, I think, speaking about uh, a set of issues or a way of understanding uh, public policy and race um, that we're not hearing a lot about, because essentially the equity lens states that ipso facto, if there is a difference in performance um, by racial categories, that is ipso facto racism. Um, without get asking second, third level questions about uh, are there other reasons for that other than the creation of the policy or the school system or the um, other other factors that might be at play. Those second and third uh, looks are, are really are really key here because I sometimes feel, I don't know if you get this sense from Glenn, I sometimes feel uh, uh, that Glenn Lowry is um, a depressed man pushing us a rock. What was the myth? Sisyphus? Pushing the rock up the hill that keeps rolling back on him. Because every time he seems to get a foothold into economic and social commentary about what social capital can do uh, at its greatest, um, He's um, he's running against a a community, both academic and in his own in and and in his own um, cohort, anthropological yeah. cohort, I guess is the way to put it. That is saying no, 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 no. It's all explained by systematic racism, and Glenn Larry doesn't believe that that even exists. He's got he's got a, a a big task in front of him. I mean, I think he's the right one. I think it's the right task. I think it's the right way. But you gotta you, you gotta sometimes feel a little empathy for him, don't you? <laughs> no, sympathy. I mean he he is someone, and I don't think I'm disclosing confidences. My my wife and I took he and his wife Luan out to dinner afterwards, um, and he actually had this answer. the The video is up on on the Pepperdine School of Public Policy's YouTube page. Oh, good. It's up now to almost ten thousand views. So good. definitely, good, good. Uh, it's it's going viral. Um. But he said, you know, I'm in my early 70s, and I'm committed to this come hell or high water. Good. Good. I mean, he's, he's essentially come to a place in his own life that the particular popular success or failure of the arguments that he's making are not as important as his belief in them. And 
that is quite an example uh, to all of us. And it's not to say, Seth, that he doesn't see that even looking through the lens of social capital, that there can't be public policies brought to bear that can't address those issues. But to eliminate or distance ourselves from asking deeper level questions of um, performance across whatever the public policy is just by saying that if we're seeing different outcomes, that is proof of racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He just does not stand for that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think really begs us all to, to think more deeply about these issues. I have a good idea. Let's put his books at the U.S. Naval Academy in West Point. You know, it's so funny you say that. When we got to the Q&A section, one of, I raised this question about critical theory and what's being taught in academia, and he had this great line about, hey, you know, if you really have to, you can put Ibram Kendi on the reading list, but you better put my book and go. Thomas Sowell yeah. and, you know, others on, on that reading list as well and teach it critically, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. that's, again, back to that thing. It's not just having those books on your reading list. It's are we teaching these critically as we would any other subject or not? Exactly right. Exactly right, Pete. All we're at, exactly all we're asking is that Marxism doesn't become the dominant theme of pedagogy <laughs> at the U.S. military. Yeah. That's all we're asking. It doesn't That's seem all. to be a That's lot, all. <laughs> brother. All you're the best. I love catching up with you. I hope you have a you really too, great man. weekend. You too, man. All Thank right, you, Pete Peterson, dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. And thank also those of you that have uh, taken up our challenge and donated to the uh, Phoenix Dream Center to help stop child slavery and child trafficking. We have a matching grant proposed to us. Anyone that we have accepted, anyone who donates to the Phoenix Dream Center to help stop child trafficking will be matched through Wednesday up to 20000 just go to 960thepatriot.com and clip the Stop Traffic Walk banner in the upper left. Stop Traffic banner in the upper left is uh, where you want to go to make your donation. And thank you to those of you who have told me throughout the show that you have donated. Uh, Bill, I just, I'm just i in the mood for this. It just It's the week I'm in the mood for it. Can I have Ronald Reagan? Can we close with some Reagan, please? When I first suggested the danger of government control inherent in so many federal handouts... There were people who denied vehemently that every, any such thing could ever take place. And yet, before too long, the same people were saying, what's wrong with government control? And in the recent days, we've heard representatives in the higher echelons of government ask us, well, are you afraid of your own government? Well, to tell you the truth, I am. And all of us should be. And I speak not in a partisan sense of an administration or individuals. I'm talking of the institution of government. Wasn't this the admonition of the Founding Fathers that government tends to grow, to take on power, until freedom eventually is lost? The fact is, and we can't escape it, 
Only government is capable of tyranny.